Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Persino Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Michelle Persino Wells, and I'm happy to be joined today by Danielle Marvel, who is our elder law department manager here at PWW Law. Um, And we are excited. We're gonna talk about crisis planning, asset protection, crisis planning for a single person. So thanks for joining me, Danielle. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So Danielle could do this in her sleep (laughs) and talk about um, crisis planning. So, I, Danielle, I think it's always important for us to sort of set the stage for our listeners um, to kind of give sort of the context of this discussion before we kind of jump into the rules. So, when we talk about asset protection planning, you know, we're talking about helping people shelter assets in the event they need long term care. And when I say long-term care, I'm talking about whether that's at home, whether that's in a facility. And so I always think it's really important um, for any of our listeners who haven't had life experience knowing kind of what the costs of long-term care looks like, that we sort of set the stage for that. And, you know, the Genworth company, it's an insurance company, but they do a great job of putting together a survey where they go um, across the country and they update their numbers pretty much annually. And they estimate what cost of care is in each state. And in some states, there's different regions that they they put together numbers for. So I thought it would be smart for us to kind of go over what those numbers look like in our geographic area. So we're talking, you know, Delaware and Maryland in general. So, um, I know we both have those numbers in front of us today, which is certainly helpful. <laughs> um, and so, Danielle, if you would, kind of run through them for me, um, you know, what the different levels of care and what kind of estimated costs, you know, a family would potentially be faced with. Yeah, so the numbers are huge, no matter what level of care you're looking at. For in-home care with an average of about 44 hours a week, the average is about $4,576 a month, over $54,000 a year. For assisted living care, that averages $5,500 a month for $66,000 a year. And for nursing home care, it's a staggering average of $10,768 a month, almost $130,000 a year. And most facilities increase their rates annually. Yeah, and it always amazes me when we see these numbers, especially the skilled nursing um, facility number at, at you know just shy of eleven thousand. I mean, in practice, we see that number a lot higher. I think on average now, what are we saying, like thirteen thousand? Yeah, anywhere from ten to fourteen thousand. Yeah, so they're big, big numbers. And and you said it, but I always like to emphasize um, the in-home care. You know that almost fifty-six thousand a year. You know that's only based on forty-four hours a week. Right. So that's nowhere near around the clock. So these are big, big numbers. And so that's why we talk about this because for for most people, um, if you gotta pay, you know, you're writing a check every month for those kinds of figures, it doesn't take long to go through a significant amount of savings. Um, So, you know, again, that's why we wanna talk about it. You know, so many people are under the impression that there's really nothing that they, they can do, that they just have to pay it. 
Um, unfortunately, you know, this is one of the most confused topics that we see people come in where they've been given terrible advice, <laughs> um, whether it's from another professional, unfortunately, whether it's from their next door neighbor. And so we really enjoy talking about this topic because um, it's a topic that just a lot of people really aren't very familiar with. So so, Danielle, when a person is faced with, you know, all of a sudden, let's say mom has had, you know, a debilitating stroke, and as much as the family would love to be able to care for her at home, the reality of that is it's number one, it's incredibly difficult. And, you know, everyone lives such fast paced lives and working and obligations, you know, so if mom needs long term care, generally, you know, how is she going to pay for that? What are her options? So the options are very limited um, because Medicare only is a short-term benefit, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more, but there is to privately pay for care, or if you have long-term care insurance, that might cover a portion of the cost, generally not all of the cost. There are some veterans programs that could increase income so that they you could privately pay longer, but most people have to rely on the Medicaid long-term care program. Right. Yeah, and I think you mentioned Medicare. It's really important here to distinguish between Medicare and Medicaid. Right. You know, Amber Woodland, you know, or the other attorney here, she loves to talk about, you know, pay attention to the word aid as part of Medicaid. You know, aid is the need-based program that's designed for people who qualify under, you know, very specific income and asset rules. Um, whereas Medicare is health insurance for older Americans. It's an entitlement program, so you can be incredibly wealthy and you're still eligible for Medicare. So like Danielle said, you know, Medicare has very limited benefits. There's qualifying hospital stays. I think at most um, they'll pay for part of 100 days through the Medicare program. So when a person just needs that standard skilled custodial care, you know, Medicare is typically not going to pay for that or not pay for much. That's so really right. important to understand. Um, the long-term care insurance too, really important to understand um, that those policies have lots of limitations and you have to be really aware of what you have if you have a long-term care policy. You know, if someone comes in and they have a policy that covers, uh, you know, it offers a $150 a day benefit, well, that's great. But if it, the facility charges $400 a day, they still have a huge sure. out-of-pocket cost. So really important to understand um, you know, what that insurance covers. So like you said, Medicaid, you know, Medicaid is the, the program that pays for people that satisfy um, the eligibility rules. Um, and we'll jump into those a little bit. Um, but before we do that, I want to, again, just sort of set up the context of asset protection planning. Um, the topic of this podcast today is crisis planning. And so, Danielle, tell us what crisis planning is. When is that appropriate? So crisis planning is generally the scenario when clients come to us and they are already in need of care, that there has been a sudden onset of some type of illness, a fall, a stroke, things along those lines, or they just can no longer care for their loved ones themselves. And now there's no time to plan because they need care now. Right, right. And, and a big myth is that there's no such thing as crisis planning. Absolutely. 
people think that, oh my goodness, you know, maybe some people have this concept of, oh, I should have planned at least five years in advance, you know, and otherwise it's too late or, you know, and so, so that's what we're here to dispel that myth that crisis planning is permissible. Um, I could say it 15 times, you know, that it's permitted under state and federal law. So there's nothing that we're going to talk about that, you know, is this, you know, secret under the table thing. I mean, these things are all permitted by regulations and by statutes. So just to, again, sort of finish off the framing and we have, we're going to have podcasts on each of these topics, but Danielle, tell us sort of what, you know, kind of the next level um, under crisis planning, sort of what we call intermediate planning. What does that look like? Yeah, that is for somebody who doesn't have a need right this second for long-term care, for hands-on care, but knows that they're going to have a need sooner than five years from now. Maybe somebody that just got a dementia diagnosis or somebody that got an MS diagnosis and they're trying to do some planning, but they don't think that they have five years to do that planning. And so that's a great segue into the five years. Let's talk about pre-planning and, and what when that's appropriate and what that usually looks like. So it's never too early to pre-plan, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> but if you believe you have at least five years before you need some type of long-term care, generally we can protect a whole lot more by doing pre-planning because of Medicaid's five-year look-back period. So if we have time to get past the long look back period, then we can do planning and protect more assets. Yeah. So Medicaid's five-year look back period, explain that if you will. Sure. Yeah. So Medicaid um, enacted a law back in, I think, what, 2008, Michelle, that they will look back the past five years to see if you've given away or transferred any assets and you weren't compensated for those. Because then they look at it and say, well, you could have used that money to pay for your care. And so since you gave that away, we're going to withhold paying for care for a certain amount of time. And so that's really where the five year comes into play. It doesn't mean that you can't give away stuff. Right. It right. just means that you have to have a plan for paying for care right. if you're going to need care in the five years. Yeah, that five-year look back is something that gets greatly confused too. And, and people often think that that means if you've given away any assets that you can't qualify for Medicaid right. for five years. And that's not it. You know, the five years is just the disclosure period that when you apply, you have to disclose gifts made within the five years. But then it's really important to understand that if a gift has been made, then it's going to depend on the value of that gift as to what the consequence of the gift will be. So currently, Delaware Medicaid imposes about a one-month penalty period for roughly every ten dollars to $11,000 that's given away. So it's just a good rule of thumb. That number changes annually. Um, but just, you know, it's important to understand the look-back period, five years, does not necessarily equal a penalty period of five years. Right. And when I talk about a penalty period, what that means is if I've given away $10,000, say, and I go and apply for Medicaid, and I satisfy all of Medicaid's other rules, Medicaid's going to say, okay, Michelle, well, we would have started paying for you, say, on you know January 1st. But because you made that $10,000 gift, we're going to impose a penalty and we're going to delay paying for a month to penalize you for the funds you've given away. So instead of starting on January 1, we're going to start on February 1 instead. So just really important to understand that, especially when a little later in the program where we start talking about some gifting strategies. 
So, so thanks, Danielle, for helping me kind of set the stage for yeah. what we're talking about. So again, we're talking today about crisis planning for a single person. Uh, we're also going to have a podcast about crisis planning for a married person because when there's a, a married, you know, when it's a married couple, the rules are very different. But in general, um, for a single person, you know, when a person wants to apply for Medicaid to help pay for their long-term care. So, Daniel, let's talk about the three-part test that, that Medicaid uses. So, number one, they're going to determine medical eligibility. So, how does that work? Yeah, so you have to have a medical need to meet Medicaid's level of care requirements, depending on what type of level of care you need. So there is a level of care requirement for home and community-based services, a level of care requirement for assisted living, and for a nursing home. Generally, that looks like needing the assistance of somebody for activities of daily living, like bathing, dressing, eating, transferring, things along those lines. But it can also incorporate a need because of cognitive issues such as dementia. Right, absolutely. And so, so the medical, by the time folks typically get to us, I mean, the medical piece is generally pretty easy to identify. You know, you know, because most people want to put off getting care as long as they can. Some, some families, we unfortunately see wait too long when the care really is needed. So the medical piece, you know, there are some requirements, but generally the easiest <laughs> to satisfy. Correct. So then Medicaid has an income test and we could talk for an hour just about that. So let's not because yeah. the income rules are pretty boring. <laughs> But if you would, just kind of lay out just the basics of what income eligibility looks like. Right. So I'll start with Maryland because those Easy. are pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> In Maryland, as long as your income is less than your cost of care, you meet the income rule. So if you're in a facility that costs $10,000 a month, as long as you don't make $10,000 a month, you meet the income rules. Delaware is a little more complicated. <laughs> They have a rule that states that if your income is over $1,985 a month, and that's based on gross income, then you have to take an extra step in order to meet their income cap rule. Right. And that extra step is generally referred to as a Miller Trust. The technical name, it's a Qualified Income Trust. Another one of those greatly confused things, people come in and say, oh, I need one of those Miller Trust things. And they think that that's sort of the magical trust to hide all their money. Um, and it's not. I mean, a Miller Trust is only used to help satisfy this income eligibility rule. So, Danielle, you know, you said the number 1985 is the current monthly income amount. You know, if a person has, you know, $1,990 a month, they're $5 over, um, the state is going to make that person create one of these Miller Trusts. They have to open a bank account. We won't get in the weeds on that, but it's required. It's not Correct. optional. And that's all that this trust does. Effectively, it reduces the person's income to the permitted amount. Um, really, the income still gets used as it otherwise would. And then if there's any money that accumulates in it you know, at the person's passing, that money would be paid to the state. Right. So just to dispel that myth, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Miller Trusts are not the magical tool. They are a necessary tool um, when, because like I say, they are not optional when a person's income is over that permitted amount. So that's kind of establishing the eligibility. Then let's talk about contribution. You know, once a person becomes Medicaid eligible, what amount of their income do they have to pay towards their care? Yeah, so in Maryland, 
generally long-term care Medicaid for the most part is widely only available in a long-term care facility and nursing home. And currently that allowance that a person is allowed to keep is $84. Maryland, it does tend to change annually by a dollar or two. Delaware is a little bit different. So Delaware, if you're getting care in the home, which is a great program that's available in Delaware, you're able to keep all of your income. Yeah, just tremendous. In assisted living, which is sometimes a little bit harder to come by for Medicaid, mm -hmm. that number currently that you're allowed to keep for personal needs is $140. That one does change a little more frequently, whereas if you're in a nursing home, you're able to keep $50, and we've not seen that change in a pretty long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been tracking, this is what my 26th year and I've seen it changed once, once. and it went from $44 to $50. Right. So yeah, not, not going to budge a whole lot. And so Dana, I just wanted to emphasize what you said about the home based Medicaid program in Delaware, mm -hmm. that once a person becomes eligible for that, there is no contribution, mm -hmm. which is incredible. And especially when we talk about how some assets can be sheltered. So if assets can be sheltered and once eligibility is achieved, the state pays 100% of the cost of care in the home. That's huge. Right. And so we're very fortunate that Delaware has such an amazing program and wish that Maryland did as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then, so income, and I should have probably said this initially, you know, income, we're talking about person's Social Security, maybe their pension. You know, we've had clients receiving alimony. It's, you know, whatever those monthly payment streams are, as opposed to assets, which are their bank accounts or their real estate. So, income again is where we're just looking at that monthly payment stream and those rules, and the Miller Trust applies to that. So, in terms of assets, mm -hmm. you know, general rule is for someone, especially who's done no planning, you know, the state says, okay, liquidate everything you own for a single person. Again, there are rules for different rules for married couples to protect that, that non-applicant spouse. But for a single person, Medicaid says, with some exceptions, but Medicaid says, you know, sell the house, liquidate the IRA, surrender the life insurance, you know, cash out the bank accounts and write a check to pay for your care every month until you're broke. And when I say until you're broke, tell, tell us what those, those spend down lim limits are. Yeah, in Delaware, they want you to get down all the way down to 2000 and right. in Maryland, 2500 Yeah, so that means everything that right. you own. So quickly, some, some exceptions to that rule are um, if, you're, if you're able to stay at home and you're applying for that home-based waiver program, the home is going to be exempt Okay, they're obviously not going to force you to sell it if you're able to continue living in it. Um, one vehicle is going to be exempt. Your personal possessions are going to be exempt. A prepaid funeral arrangement or maybe burial plots if you own them. In some cases, some like term life insurance policies, policies that don't have any cash value. But if a policy has cash value and it can be surrendered to get that cash, they consider that accountable resource. So the limitations for a single person are pretty limited. Um, the topic of the house always comes up for a single person, um, you know, under those strict Medicaid rules, you know, they require that it be sold, but there are some planning opportunities there. 
Um, so Danielle, I'll let you, the first one, when it works out, it is a tremendous planning opportunity. It's what we call a discounted sale. So you want to talk about those rules? Yeah. So there is a rule that allows for liquid assets like real estate to be sold for two thirds of the value and Medicaid will consider that they've been fully compensated if you receive at least two thirds value. So what we often see in our practice is there's a family member that can take advantage of that. So the house is worth 300,000, the family member can pay 200,000 immediately sheltering that 100,000, then the remaining 200,000 goes back to the applicant, the Medicaid applicant who needs care and we do planning with that money. So that is the biggest advantage of the two-thirds sales when there is a family member who can take advantage of that. Right, because right. ordinarily under the gifting rules, if you gifted a $300,000 house, you know, you let somebody pay $200,000 for it, well, it screams you've just made a $100,000 gift. So it's important here that this is an exception to that rule. Right. And like I said, a tremendous planning opportunity when you have the right facts. Not all families are able to do that, but when it does work out, it is a great planning strategy because then, you know, that family member who purchased the house, you know, they can turn around and sell it. Now they mm -hmm. should get some tax advice. Not right. going to go into that, but don't sell it, you know, a month later, um, get some tax advice first, but they can turn around and sell it and, you know, recoup what they paid for it. Plus, you know, that extra third, that really is a, a gift um, and was able to shelter that. So a great opportunity. We also look at for a single person, you know, selling, if the house has to be sold, you know, selling it, ideally it would be sold before a person applies for Medicaid so that the sale proceeds can be worked into the planning. Um, but we have had many families, you know, in this current real estate market, we see properties are selling so quickly, but you know, that's not always the case. So in some families, you know, we've had to apply for Medicaid first while the house is up for sale. And so if you would kind of explain how that works. So you do have to show to Medicaid that you're making a reasonable effort to sell the house. And what Medicaid will do is they will say, okay, you've met all the other eligibility requirements except for the house being sold. So we're going to grant you Medicaid. However, after 60 days, we will place a lien on the property and keep a tab going for anything that we paid out on your behalf. That lien will then need to be settled when the house is sold. And then you still have to deal with the proceeds after the house is sold and do some additional planning because at that point, your loved one's going to be over $2,000 right. again. Right. So it's usually two phases of planning instead of one that we could do if it's sold before we apply for Medicaid. Yeah. And so we're getting to that, how, right. how we would plan to, to shelter some of those proceeds. So we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But before we get there, I think it's important, you know, a person applies for Medicaid and they have, you know, $100,000 worth of assets. Um, so, you know, what, what kind of planning is available? So we always look first at, you know, are there ways that they should consider spending some of that money, spending it in a way that will benefit them or benefit their family? Um, and so, you know, we have kind of a standard list of things that we look at. They're not all appropriate for all families. It's, it's, it's interesting to see how some families, you know, jump on certain spend down strategies versus others. 
Um, but maybe we'll just kind of go back and forth with these. So I'll do the first one. So funeral arrangements. Medicaid allows a Medicaid applicant to spend up to $15,000 making prepaid, irrevocable funeral arrangements. And so generally, you know, we all know, unfortunately, that's an expense that we're all going to incur someday. And so as part of Medicaid planning, if a person doesn't have funeral plans in place, it's usually smart to spend some money, go ahead and get that done, get that in place. Um, most funeral homes put those funds in a life insurance type product. And so then for Medicaid application purposes, that life insurance is not going to be considered an asset. It's going to be considered exempt. So, Daniel, you want to do the second one? Sure. So, Medicaid also permits the purchase of burial spaces and burial space items, not only for the Medicaid applicant, but their immediate family, such as their children, their siblings, and even their siblings' spouses, their parents, if they're still alive. And burial spaces and burial space <laughs> items are um, a broad range of things. So it can be your plots, it can be headstones, crypts, things along those lines all fall under that category. And again, aren't just for the applicant, but also their immediate family. And so it's important because again, if 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 mom was going to spend you know a couple thousand dollars on say son uh, or give him a couple thousand dollars, I'm sorry, that's a gift, and yeah. Medicaid's going to say, oh wait, we got to calculate a penalty. But if mom spends you know a few thousand dollars on son purchasing these kinds of items because of this rule, that's not going to impose a penalty. So it's. It's why we always include that for consideration. The other one, a new vehicle, um, Medicaid, a Medicaid applicant, even if there's no chance that they can actually drive themselves, as long as the applicant has either a valid driver's license or a valid state ID card, um, they can purchase a vehicle. Um, and so in some families, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's a vehicle that can be used to transport the Medicaid applicant if they're able to be transported. Some families, you know, will use the car for other purposes. Um, some, this is the biggest one I think that some families are like, why on earth would we buy a car? And in other families, it makes a lot of sense. So just an important rule to understand. Yeah, and for some families, it's a good way to go from two vehicles to one because right. they're able to have one vehicle. And so what they'll do is trade in both vehicles for a newer vehicle, plus perhaps use some money on a newer vehicle. Yeah, so that absolutely. is one that's taken advantage of. Yeah. We also see home improvements being taken advantage of for a, a lot of our clients that are going to remain in the home. It can be things to make life easier for them, a ramp, bathroom remodeling, but it could also be things just to update the home, such as new furniture, new carpet, new flooring, things along those lines to give their home some value. Right, right. And that's a great way to take assets that would be countable. Um, and once you spend them on the house, if the house is exempt, now you've converted them into exempt assets. So that's always a great strategy, um, as is paying off or paying down debts. You know, if there's a mortgage on the house, if there's credit card debt, um, you know, it's really important to take a look and, and determine, you know, one, if those, especially if income will start going to a facility, it's really important to see how money should be used to pay off some debt. Yeah, we also give a lot of consideration into paying taxes. You mentioned mm -hmm. it earlier about making sure that you seek tax advice <laughs> with the house. We recommend that quite a bit with our clients because what we see a lot of times is there's a retirement account that has to be liquidated or an annuity that has to be a brokerage account that has capital gains involved. And so we always want to make sure that any taxes that are going to be due because of those liquidations or surrender 
spend or are being paid as part of the spend down so that you're not spent down to $2,000 and all of a sudden come April, you owe $15,000 right. or something like that in taxes. So we always want to make sure we pay attention to that. And worst case scenario, typically we're doing this planning, there are going to be some sheltered assets. Right. So if there were an unexpected tax bill, there would be those sheltered assets that could be used. But that's not ideal. So it's really something that needs to be considered. And with that, paying a CPA, paying attorney's fees, paying any kind of professional fees is always going to be permitted spend down as well. So when we're looking at a person's situation and we're looking at, okay, how can we achieve Medicaid eligibility and still shelter some assets? Again, we're looking at spend down first. But then typically, we, once we get through spend down, there's still, we always call it the pot of remaining assets. There's still going to be some assets left over. And so that's where we use the, the, the biggest strategy where we actually are sheltering some funds. And so that we call it a gift and annuity strategy. It involves the use of what's called a Medicaid compliant annuity. That Medicaid compliant is really important to understand. There is a very strict set of rules that make an annuity considered Medicaid compliant. And unfortunately, it's not usually going to be one that you would just go to your favorite banker and or your favorite local financial advisor and be able to purchase through them. There are companies that have been created that specialize in Medicaid compliant annuities. So you have to be really careful with this. So um, this strategy generally is going to look at, you know, like I say, that remaining pot of cash, you know, once assets have been liquidated, once any spend downs complete. And I always like to think of it that it's easy just to think about it in terms of like 50-50. You know, 50% of that cash in that pot can be invested in one of these Medicaid compliant annuities. And then the other 50%, the, the actual percentages in, in real life, you know, get calculated really to the penny. And it depends on a lot of different factors, their income, their cost of care, the liquid assets, all of that. But again, we're going to use 50-50 for today. So 50% goes in the annuity. The other 50% gets put into a gift. And that's generally we're going to recommend that gift be held in a certain type of trust. Um, and so Danielle, when a client does that, you know, when a family comes to us and we take the 50% and we purchase an annuity and we use the other 50% and we move that into an asset protection trust, what happens next? We're ready to apply for Medicaid, right? <laughs> because they're otherwise eligible because they are spent down to $2,000 or less. Right. And so Medicaid says, Okay, you're under $2,000, you've met the other eligibility requirements, you've created a Miller Trust if that's necessary for your income, but you gave away money. Right. So we're going to penalize that. We're not going to pay for care for a certain amount of time, but it's okay because we took the other 50% and put it into this annuity that is going to create a stream of income to finish paying for your care during that penalty period, which is why it's important to make sure there's a strategy with any type of gifting. Right, because the whole point of this, you have to, in order for Medicaid to start a penalty period, you have to show that you're, and Danielle, you said it, you have to show that you're otherwise eligible for Medicaid. And so that's a term of art, otherwise eligible, where you have to have satisfied all of Medicaid's other rules. So you have to show them that you're down below that permitted resource allowance, the $2,000. And when you're down below $2,000, you don't have the funds left in your bank account to privately pay through a penalty period. 
So that's where the annuity comes in. And those annuities are calculated, like I said, to the penny, so that when that monthly annuity payment is added to a person's social security and their pension or whatever other types of income they have, they have just about enough to, to pay their monthly cost of care. And so, you know, I started this example saying, if there's $100,000 left, you know, you look at strategic spend down first, let's pretend that, um, you know, they, they spent, you know, uh, uh, 20,000, they have $80,000 left. If it's 50, 50, that means they're putting $40,000 into that gift. That $40,000 gift is going to impose about a four month penalty period. And so the annuity, I always love this, you know, so how many months will the annuity pay? Four, four months. months. <laughs> Four months, right. The annuity is always going to be structured. The term of the annuity is always going to match the term of the penalty period. And so that's the beauty of it. So in that example, if it's a four-month penalty period, for that four months, that person is going to continue privately paying for care. But at the end of the four months, the annuity is going to end because the term is up. But Medicaid is going to begin paying at the end of the, the four months. Yet the gifted funds, the other $40,000 in my example, that's tucked away in the trust and has been completely sheltered. So again, you know, I go back to my comment earlier about the five-year look back. So this is gifting that was done right before applying for Medicaid. So we had to disclose it because it was within the five-year look back period, but the actual penalty was based on the value of the gift and has nothing to do with the five-year time period. So hopefully you can see through that, you know, that it is possible to shelter assets even at the last minute. And so, Danielle, I thought it would be smart for us to just kind of close just sort of talking about the benefits of asset protection planning. Um, so the first one we always like to talk about is that, you know, we see families put off care because they're afraid of how much it's going to cost. They think they can't afford it. They think they're going to lose everything they have. They think that their only option is a skilled nursing facility because they can't afford care at home. And hopefully we've shown today that that's not true. There, there's planning strategies that are available. The, you know, once Medicaid eligibility is achieved, it'll pay for care at home when that's appropriate. If that person later needs to move to a facility, the Medicaid coverage goes with them. So biggest, biggest benefit of planning is making sure that people are getting the care that they need. Right. Yeah, because we do have clients that could probably go into a facility mm -hmm. or certainly have care at home and they put it off because right. of the fear of the expense. Right. But right. there is help out there and it's likely that they can qualify for that help. Right, right. The planning also helps people preserve a nest egg. It's number one, a nest egg, you know, to provide for themselves because there are limitations to Medicaid coverage and Medicare's coverage. Even if you have supplemental insurance, there are limitations. Or even if, you know, you want a an iPad, you know, for a person who's capable of using something like that. So, you know, when a person truly spends down all their money and then they go on Medicaid, they're broke and they do without unless a family member is willing to dip into their pocket. So preserving a nest egg, you know, that's going to make sure people get the best, you know, quality of care, quality of life possible. Um, also, one of the sort of, I always call it some of the side effects of this planning is probate avoidance. You know, in some of our other podcasts, we've talked at length about probate and the use of trust to avoid probate. Well, that is a benefit of doing this kind of planning too, um, because, 
you know, when all this planning is done, you know, prior to a Medicaid application, that person isn't going to have a probate estate upon their death. So it really does sort of allow you to sort of do that estate administration mm-hmm. um, while a person is still living, uh, which makes things really easy once your loved one passes away, and which is really a blessing in a lot of families. Absolutely. And the last one, leaving a legacy. And, you know, Danielle works hand in hand with a lot of our clients. She does a great job of assisting you because we're typically working with the son, daughter, niece, nephew, a lot of spouses too. Um, But what we have found is that it's really important to our clients, the ones who are able to communicate it to us, that they, they don't want all of their money spent. You know, they say, we worked hard, we scrimped, we saved, you know, we really wanted something to be left you know, for our kids and our, and our families. Yeah, we often have the families that come in and say, well, mom said I always got this, or dad always said I got that when they passed away, and that's what's in their will. But the important thing to know is that if there's nothing left, that will doesn't control anything. Right. So right. if they do a little bit of planning now, they can make sure that they're taken care of and that they still do leave everything behind that they want yeah. to. Yeah. And that is so critically important to so many people to, to leave that legacy. Right. So, Danielle, I think that'll do it for us for today. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge with us. I Thank appreciate you. it. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.